And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, March 16th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive... You've got whistleblower protection even before you apply for a federal job. Plus, IRS managers have high hopes now that there's a new confirmed commissioner. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, if you work with a job with security clearance, you've probably got a nice pay bump last year. That's the big finding from Clearance Jobs' latest security clearance compensation report. The survey shows more than half the cleared community now takes in a six-figure salary. For more on the numbers, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with Clearance Jobs President Evan Lesser and senior editor Jill Hamilton. We survey the cleared community every year. This is our annual survey. There's over 50,000 respondents. And the big news this year is that cleared compensation is up by 7%. It's the average total compensation pulling the overall industry. So it's all the different jobs, it's all the agencies. The overall compensation number is 108611 for this past year, which is a really big increase for the clear community. A lot of bonuses, a lot of increases for clear candidates this past year. It just was like a called the year of upward trends where, you know, inflation's up, you know, the cost of buying eggs is even up, you know, like everything costs more. There's a lot more pressure and employers responded with a big compensation bump for the community. So it was great to see. Got it. Yeah. You, you know, I think folks are obviously paying more for groceries. So it's it's definitely great to see that, <laughs> that uh, big percentage bump. I, I'm wondering, you know, what is the average cleared candidate look like these days? I, I think that's that's helpful for folks to, to know as well who we're talking about. Yeah, I think it depends upon obviously the industry, but we based it on, there's a profile we put, it's kind of a profile, but it's the, it's the top averages that you're typically going to see. You know, you see the highest average is top secret SCIs, for, I think it's 46%, or it's always right around there. Like there, predominantly that's what we have. We have a lot of respondents in that, in that category male dominant, you know, predominantly, like there's a lot of higher, highest percentage of males who are part of the respondent pool. And just kind of going back through some of those averages, most of them have a bachelor's degree. A lot of people in the cleared community support the Department of Defense. So that is your, that's a big bucket there when you look out and you're getting people responding to a job, a lot of them will have a DOD security clearance. Like that's a lot of the pools. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get that overall mix all together, but you do see a lot of those top line numbers like the, the, that is where the higher averages are. The only other thing I can add to that is that the vast majority of candidates are in tech, probably, you know, roughly, you know, 70 odd percent, not to discount the other roughly 30 percent. But, you know, as you know, with clearances, you can have anything from tech and engineering, to training, to logistics, to intel, sales and marketing, healthcare, you know, HVAC, anything you can think of, you're going to have someone with the security clearance that's doing that work. So the, the survey we, we put out, we typically try to get, you know, as Jill said, you know, roughly 50,000 responses. I think for most surveys, people would think, oh, 50,000, that's way overkill. But 
considering there's so many candidates from so many different backgrounds, so many different locations, not just U.S., but across the globe, we really try to get as many candidates as possible so we can get a good representation of uh, uh, kind of a cross-section uh, of the clear community. You started talking about the different career fields, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Obviously, it pays to be engineering systems and some of the different aspects of, of IT, a lot of the different aspects of IT in management, of course, you know, what are the trends that we're seeing in terms of how you're paid by career fields in a clear position? So I do know that tech and engineering are going to typically get some of the higher pay. When you look at tech specifically, cybersecurity is right at the top. Software development is right at the top. And, and a lot of that just has to do with the scarcity of talent. There's just not enough skilled security cleared software developers and cybersecurity professionals out there. So they typically get the higher pay. Obviously, when you look at higher level clearances and then you add on a polygraph, you're going to be looking at the highest paid folks out there. Right behind tech, you typically find engineering, systems engineering is, is highly paid as well. Sales professionals were towards the top of our list this year as well. And I think that really speaks to, I would say, the government budget more than anything, the, the DOD budget for 2023 is a record high, you know, at, at over 800 billion. And companies are doing what they can to try to get a piece of, of that pie. So sales professionals with clearance in government are, are really uh, towards the top of the list as well. Jill, you, you may note some others that were towards the top of the list, but I know that tech, engineering and sales were right at the top. Yeah, I mean, we've seen data science add to the, the top five list in the past four to five years. That's been one that's been added as one of the front runners. But I mean, even if you think about it, I mean, despite all the layoffs in the tech industry, I mean, there's still a shortage of workers out there and there's a, still a lot of roles out there. It's not different in national security. But you also think, you know, tech workers, a lot of them, I mean, some of that's changing with skills over degrees shifts that we see even in the federal government. But a lot of them have at least one, if not two degrees. They have different aspects on their resumes that they've put the time, money, and effort into. So yeah, so compensation does follow with some of those different careers, whether it's in engineering or it's in tech fields. There's, there's a lot that's gone into building that compensation number as well. Yeah, and I think you're seeing some agencies try to t take advantage of those layoffs in the tech field by reaching out to those folks who are maybe working in uh, companies in Silicon Valley and seeing if they want to, mm -hmm. you know, sign up for a career in government. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next year as well. One interesting thing here is that security clearance holders are have spread out a bit post pandemic outside of the the DC region and are still well-paid outside of the DC region. Uh, what's going on there? I mean, are we seeing more opportunities for folks to, to work in different States who have a security clearance? I mean, I think, I think we are, but everything in, I think the national security industry moves in, in tiny, smaller increments. So whereas, you know, right in the immediately after in 2020, you saw the rest of the world immediately go home. I mean, we, you know, people in national security had to go home as well, obviously, but everybody couldn't just move to, you know, whatever state or island that they wanted to live on if they worked in national security. So some of these changes are very, very slow and incremental. What, so what we've seen is over the last three years, even just, just DC itself has decreased just teeny tiny bits by about like 1% each year, where 
they're still going to have a presence. That's just not going to change. You have the Capitol, you have the White House, you have um, the Pentagon, Pentagon nearby. So it's not like changes, but there is some spreading out where different companies where maybe it was harder for them to get cleared candidates to want to come and move there just because there wasn't as many opportunities. The biggest pull, pull here in the DC region is you can quit one job and start another with a very small lag time in between because the opportunities are just everywhere you look. But now a lot of those opportunities are springing up around the country. So like DC has was 7% of the clear population, but so is Florida. So is Texas. So is California. So you're still going to see the DC region. Maybe it's just not as big compared to the rest as a lot of the other regions grow. Clearance Jobs Senior Editor Jill Hamilton and President Evan Lesser speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Still to come, IRS managers have high hopes now that there's a new confirmed commissioner. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Managers at the IRS have definite hopes and expectations for the coming year now that they have a confirmed commissioner and the expectation of extra money thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Just before the Senate confirmed Commissioner Danny Werfel, I spoke with the president of the Professional Managers Association, Chad Hooper. He said that Werfel, to be successful, must be a partner to the workforce to lead us as an agency through the modernization and reform initiatives that are ahead of us. A future IRS commissioner has to communicate with frontline employees, managers, and supervisors at all levels of the agency. The transformation isn't going to be successful if it happens from the top, but it's also not going to be successful if it happens from the bottom. So we feel very passionately that frontline managers must be included in that conversation because they're aware uniquely of what their teams need and what barriers to success exist. And so it will prevent the agency in this time of rapid transformation after so many um, decades of inertia, prevent us from reinventing a wheel or proposing reforms with no practical chance of proper implementation. Um, and we want that next commissioner to understand the value of and commit to working closely with frontline IRS management associations, particularly like the one that I lead here at PMA, where we already have a formal consultative agreement with the service that's centered on enhancing agency operations. Because there is some evidence coming out that because of the money they got under the infrastructure bill, this $80 billion, a lot of it has initially been used to just get out of the emergency they've been having in customer experience, answering the phones and so forth, but at the cost of some of the long-term modernization efforts that were ongoing, such as the software that controls the master file system, which is really the link pin to all of the other modernization they want to do, that's been put on hold or pushed back for the umpteenth time. What are you hearing? So for from our perspective, 
you know, we we knew that there would be an immediate need for the agency to make investments right away to turn around. It's this backlog that I know publicly they've been attributing to the pandemic. We feel is it's more appropriate to attribute it to the 2018-2019 government shutdown that then was exacerbated by the pandemic. But that's neither here nor there. The good news is that we seem to be on top of it now. That immediate demonstration of ability is necessary politically, unfortunately. If we got all of this, you know, $80 billion, and then in the immediate aftermath of the very next tax season also showed, um, right, like we were slow to react or slow to dig out, there was a very real risk that a new Congress would take that money away and say we weren't implementing it properly. So those priorities are kind of set by the political winds. And and that isn't me minimizing, of course, the very real need of us to provide adequate service during the filing season. I'm thrilled to to know that we're able to answer more than 90% of the calls and and respond to people's inquiries and, and process their tax returns. Like that's a phenomenal improvement. But as you mentioned, the elephant in the room is getting ourselves off of the 65 year old computer system. And that is the real work ahead. Um, But right now, for me, uh, I think that kind of prioritization does require a confirmed commissioner Um, going into this kind of a filing season and these and, and thinking of these kinds of changes is like going into the playoffs without a coach. And I don't think like any pro team would recommend that. You know, so we have our committed employees at the IRS, like working to execute their responsibilities to have a filing season. Those are the things they know how to do very well. But without like real leadership at the top to make and support management decisions, um, to instill a productive org culture and to manage these critical modernization efforts. I just I don't know, like one example I had um, that I felt like where this was already evident was how the agency missed its own deadline to produce a plan of how it was going to over the next 10 years um, use the $80 billion appropriation. We were really disappointed to see the agency miss that deadline, but that deadline did fall in between, you know, Reddick's term limit and the appointment of a new commissioner. And in some ways I wasn't surprised, I disappointed, but not surprised um, that the agency would miss that. We're speaking with Chad Hooper. He's president of the Professional Managers Association. What should the first thing Danny Werfel does be, do you think? I believe that the first thing that Commissioner Werfel would need to focus on is meeting with us and our, uh, we have a sister group at uh, the Federal Managers Association that advocates as well to understand the lay of the land. We also want to be sure that Commissioner Werfel is unique in having prior experience. We don't often get a commissioner who was an acting commissioner in the past. And there are some things that have changed in the last 13 years since Danny was here last. However, at the IRS, there's also a lot of things to say the same. And we want to be sure that we have an opportunity to uh, read Commissioner Werfel in on those on those issues and on those intractable problems, um, because we are not currently confident that the senior executive team necessarily has an unvarnished view of what's going on under the hood. And we want that we want the current future commissioner to have a full awareness of what they're facing while trying to implement a major transformation so that they can have a clear view of roadblocks and possible issues. 
in the next five years. And what might some of the roadblocks be to the reforms needed, do you think? I mean, you've got a lot of unionized employees, but they say the right things about wanting to move the agency forward and be a high-performing 21st century tax organization. So what's buried there under the seemingly calm sure. waters right now. And we agree with um, with our and union partner NTEU that there is an appetite for that. And we do believe that having that modernization would improve the employee experience. What we're not seeing is a skilled executive and management cadre that we think can lead a workforce of tomorrow. And we are also concerned that with an, a huge influx of new hires, Currently, right, as we're trying to rebuild some of what we've lost over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. But then also, the IRS workforce is older than the rest of the civil service. Um, And during Commissioner Werfel's term, should he be confirmed, we'll see a great amount of generational turnover at the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS culture internally is not prepared to onboard a lot of new talent. It's been a very long time since we've seen a lot of fresh faces. There's a lot of tension um, among the workforce when they see someone new come in at a higher grade, because you have to remember for 30 or 40 years, the only new faces you usually see are at the entry level. So seeing someone walk into a grade 13, a grade 14 job, that was always usually like an internal hire. Mm -hmm. And the IRS doesn't have a great way right now to onboard folks into those roles. They don't have a great way to train folks and to keep their like continuing education skills up. And we don't believe, I know that that's like very wonky, but we want to be sure that the managers have the tools and the resources that they need in order to lead. And sometimes we don't think that the current leadership, um, particularly in just in the senior executive service, like hears that um, or really appreciates fully the risk to the agency that they're that they're that's on the horizon, I guess I should say. So ultimately, all of their issues revolve around human capital at some level. I would say that the biggest issues are in human capital right now. And just finally, you know, the new commissioner will have a five-year term, and yet there's a 10-year modernization and transformation plan. So what should that plan look like and what transformations should happen in the next five and 10 years, Looking, taking I'm, a long-term view here? I'm really fortunate to not be the person who has to conceive of that myself. And I feel for the next commissioner because the hard work of developing a 10-year modernization plan for the world's most complex and efficient tax collection mechanism in, in humanity's history is quite an undertaking. And then when you think about the IRS commissioner's term, right, being limited to five years, then you have to leave when it's only half-baked. So Commissioner Werfel will only get to see half of that take place and, and build the mechanisms to see it through to the end. Not only would does that funding, the $80 billion, transform taxpayer service, and you can see that dividend being paid, as we mentioned earlier, we also think that there's space for, in this plan, our government taking a more active role in improving tax administration and increasing equity in the tax system. You may have saw in January, Stanford and the Treasury Department together put out a study further implying that the overselection of Black taxpayers in our audit system, PMA has spoken out about this and our former commissioner didn't really agree with that. Now we have additional data that suggests that there's more the IRS can do there. Um, And I think that that would be an important thing 
for a future commissioner to focus on in these five years. I also believe that ensuring that the $80 billion, that there are structures and accountability structures and procurements to be sure that the that that money is spent properly. Chad Hooper is president of the Professional Managers Association, and there's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, should government leave some problems for the nonprofit sector to solve? But first, you've got whistleblower protection even before you apply for a federal job. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. In a recent decision, the Merit Systems Protection Board confirmed that people are covered by the Whistleblower Protection Act, even if they blew the whistle before even applying for a federal job. The board disagreed with the federal court, but upheld the board's own precedent. For the significance of this case, we turn to attorneys Christine Kumar and Jim Eisenman of the Alden Law Group. Good to have you both with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Good to be here, Tom. Thanks. And this case, well, there's a couple of cases that it revolved around, but what is the significance? In other words, if I blow the whistle, in one case, someone from a contractor blew the whistle on the government and then applied to work for the government... And it turned out that that person was protected per the Merit Systems Protection Board. And so what does this all mean? How do you interpret this? Right. The significance of it, it's important, but I think there are some qualifications to that importance. The Whistleblower Protection Act protects people who make what are called protected disclosures. And the question in this case was whether this person, this appellant, qualified in terms of making a protective disclosure because at the time they made that disclosure, which was about fraud, they were not either an employee of the government or an applicant to uh, be an employee with the government. They were a contractor. And when you look at the actual statutory language of the Whistleblower Protection Act in terms of making protective disclosures, it does say someone should be an employee or applicant. But the board here agreed with its own prior precedent, disagreed with federal courts' non-presidential opinions, finding that that was not actually required. So what it means is those people who are not employees and not applicants for jobs with the government can make protected disclosures. Now, how often that's going to happen, I'm not quite sure, because how often is someone who's not an applicant, not an employee, going to know enough to even blow the whistle. Here, this person's a contractor working with federal uh, in a federal entity, so they're going to know more. Right. The idea here was this person blew the whistle on the Army from the contractor standpoint and then applied for a job at the government, was denied, and saw that as a retaliatory type of whistleblower retaliation, basically. 
Well, Christine, what if someone, I mean, this is probably a hypothetical, but this would also apply if, suppose that person blew the whistle on their own company as a contractor, then applied to the government. They would still be protected under this system? So I don't know if they would be protected under the WPA, but I think they would have protections under the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, which specifically protects employees of contractors from that very situation. Right. So they could blow the I mean, their own company could commit retaliation, but then it wouldn't really be the government's matter in that case, at least in terms of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Correct. Got it. And suppose, I mean, this is really stretching it, but suppose they blew their whistle on a company that was not a contractor and then a year later applied to join the government and someone in the government said, well, you're, you're kind of a troublemaker when you work for Staples or I'm just making up a company. We don't think it fit here. It does have to deal, the, the, the whistleblowing does have to deal with the government and the government's good name. So blowing the whistle on a private entity, and at least in terms of the Whistleblower Protection Act. So blowing the whistle on a private entity really wouldn't implicate uh, the government and wouldn't really fall in that era, that protection. And actually, there's a decision in the last year from the MSPB on that very issue. I can't recall the exact name of it right now, but there's a decision saying that. So blowing the whistle on, you know, if I was a government employee and I said, you know, Staples is, you know, committing fraud. It's not going to, I'm not going to be protected by the WPA. Right. So there is some level of connection in these precedents between the government and the person applying and the company that they were blowing the whistle on or from which they blew the whistle. Right. Got it. We're speaking with Jim Eisenman and Christine Kumar, attorneys with the Alden Law Group. And by the way, what is your observation of the pace of what's been coming out of the MSPB now that we're one year on from its having a quorum. They're down by one again, but at least they still have the two. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's been it's almost exactly a year from when the quorum was restored with uh, at least two board members, member Levitt, who just left and Limon. Uh, I think the pace is good. The board has said, you know, they had, I think, at the peak, an invitation, as they refer to it, an inherited inventory of 3,800 petitions for review, they normally only deal with 600 in a, in a given year. So they've been focusing on the 75% oldest or 75% of the cases that, that are going to issue will be the oldest cases. But I think the pace is good. They've issued about 55 presidential opinions in that time and about, I think, 1,200, give or take, non-presidential opinions. But I think they're, they're moving along pretty quickly. I think the good thing there wasn't a good thing generally about having no quorum, but the good thing is that the office that writes, drafts the opinions for the board members, they were continuing to work this whole time. Sure. So uh, there are lots of opinions in, in the wings waiting for uh, the board members to review. And Ms. Kumar, would you say that the fact that the bulk of cases, 90 plus percent of the backlog that they're dealing with is non-presidential? And there's about 55% that are, I'd be 55, I think maybe the number's up to 75 that are precedential. Those are almost like the blueberries buried in a big mass of oatmeal. That that's testimony to the basic quality that the administrative judges work does for MSPB? I think that's correct. We learned today from Kathy Harris at our panel that to determine how a case is 
classified as presidential. It comes from their appeals counsel who drafts the briefs for them. And they look at what people are confused about and what people still need clarity on. And so, yeah, I think it speaks to the fact that administrative judges are doing a good job of clarifying legal precedent and the law such that they're not having as many presidential decisions. Plus, the board, in the greater sense than even the individual cases, is starting to issue summaries and advisories. And I think they just came out with a new handbook, if you will, of prohibited personnel practices, which updates prior volumes. And there's some some that are particularly popular in terms of what people do to other people that's wrong. And so I guess that looks like they're back in business, too, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think that, that so they've issued, I think, two studies or reports, as they call them, since the quorum was restored. And the, this one you're referring to, the one on prohibited personnel practices, PPPs, was just issued. And I think the, you know, in terms of the, the quality of the decisions, I know the, the administrative judge decisions, they certainly look at, when you look at their annual reports, they have all the pie charts about the, the decisions, what side they were on, how many cases were settled. And when you look at generally at those kind of pie charts, and the decisions that are made by the judges on the, on the merits of the case, typically about 85% of those are sustaining what the agency did. And that hasn't changed much over the years. Yeah, and uh, I've read quite a few of those reports over the years. And for legal readouts, if you will, they're surprisingly readable to the untrained legal eye. Well, they've been they've been doing that, and, and certainly when I was there, I was I was focused on trying to make sure that that was the case too. But they they've been doing that for years, and they will continue to do that. I think it's important to be able to understand it. So, getting back to the original question here on protection for pre-applicants, then anything else we need to know, Christine? Well, just that the relevant question the MSPB confirms with this case is about the timing of. The personnel action versus the disclosure. So it does not matter when you make the disclosure, but rather what was your status when the retaliatory acts occurred. And I think that should bring a lot of relief for people who are worried about when they make their disclosures. And regardless, it still takes nerve to make a disclosure, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Put your life on hold, I guess, sometimes. Well, in the case of some of these backlog cases, maybe 10 years. Attorneys Christine Kumar and Jim Eisenman of the Alden Law Group, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive your precedent. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, should government leave some problems for the nonprofit sector to solve? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Numerous recent polls show a low level of public faith in government. At least in some minds, that raises the question of whether the government is trying to solve too many problems. 
My next guest says the nonprofit sector might be better at applying market forces to help. She's president and CEO of the Right of Center Philanthropy Roundtable, Elise Westhoff. Ms. Westhoff, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And just for purposes of kind of placing your organization's general outlook, just tell us what it's all about, what your fundamental philosophy is here. Absolutely. Well, the the Philanthropy Roundtable is a network of philanthropists who believe in liberty, opportunity, and personal responsibility. And we help donors advance those values through effective charitable giving. We also think it's really important for donors to have the flexibility to give how, when, and where they choose from a policy perspective. So we work on policy issues that are facing the charitable sector. All right. And well, what are some of the policy issues affecting the charitable sector right now, by the way? Yeah, that's a great question. We are, you know, there are many efforts right now to, you know, kind of restrict or coerce donors to give in a certain way. And we believe that will lead to less giving and less money going to communities in need. So we're against any efforts that sort of force donors to give on a certain timeline. There's something called the ACE Act right now that we're watching closely that would target donor-advised funds and private foundations. And so we're trying to educate people about how that would actually have a negative impact on the charitable sector and on communities in need. We also are watching efforts to, you know, force donor disclosure. So we work with public charities, organizations that are doing great work in their communities, and oftentimes people are calling for lists of donors to be made public. And there are many, many reasons why donors may wish to give privately. And so we are working to protect that constitutionally upheld right to give privately if donors so choose to do so. Okay. Well, let's get to the issue of some of the public problems, some of the societal problems that and the government pretty much is involved in almost everyone you can name at some level, either through direct policy of federal agencies or through the grant making process, which is, you know, quite a number of hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Give us some examples of things where the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic side, is doing good work in problems, say, the government has not been successful at solving. I think education is a really great example. We have a lot of problems with our education system. And, um, you know, while well-intentioned, I think um, the government is often failing in this area and we're letting our kids down. And I think the charitable sector has really stepped up to provide innovative solutions People are giving scholarships to low-income students. They're starting new schools with innovative models that are working with underprivileged kids and giving them opportunities that they wouldn't have in the public school system. So that that's one area where I think the charitable sector has really shined. Issues like crime, we have organizations like Code 3, which is a D.C.-based organization that really tries to build trust between police and their communities. And I think that's such an important effort right now because we all know that there's a lot of tension between the communities and the police right now. And to build that trust is a really productive thing to do. By the way, just what, what is the mechanism by which Code 3 does this? What, what is it they're doing specifically? What are they funding? What types of initiatives does this take the form of? That's a great question. What they do is they, they bring the police in and do kind of like volunteer projects with some of the youth in the community 
They do outreach. They actually sit across the table from one another and get to know each other so that there can be an effort to humanize, you know, both on both sides and get to know one each one another. And I think that's, you know, it really helps to have that human connection when you're working to solve problems in the community. All right. And then there's one more that you have cited, too, and that is Jobs for America's Graduates for people as young as the sixth grade, getting them involved in in what exactly? Right. So this is an organization that helps connect youth to opportunities that are, you know, getting them the skills that they need to actually succeed in the workforce. So often our students aren't well prepared for the workforce when they when they finish with school. And this is giving people tangible skills that they can use kind of like an apprenticeship model so that they can go and get jobs that are productive. And I think, again, this is another area where I don't think the government is meant to do this, but a civil society solution can really step in and um, and make a huge difference in people's lives. All right. We're speaking with Elise Westhoff. She is the president and CEO of the Philanthropy Roundtable. And I guess maybe the question I would ask then is, what are some things maybe the government should not do that you think could be best taken up privately between philanthropic organizations and those that they're trying to help? Well, government plays an important role in society, but there are so many advantages to private philanthropy and to charitable organizations. They're flexible, they're nimble, they're quick. So having a a strong partnership between government and um, nonprofit organizations, I think is really important. And I think, you know, the charitable sector can be an effective tool in almost every issue and problem that we face. If you look back at the pandemic, communities really stepped up, neighbors helped their neighbors. The government is, is not nimble and flexible and entrepreneurial. It's not meant to be, but charitable organizations can be. And so even issues like research to develop a vaccine Philanthropy was really, really important in that effort and, you know, helped to get things done more quickly. But, of course, it's always a partnership. All right. And let me ask you this. What are the – tell us a little bit more about your organization. What kinds of groups are members of it? And is it safe to say they have a market kind of orientation in general? Yes. We have hundreds of philanthropists in our community, and they give in a variety of different ways. We have philanthropists who give through – private foundations who give individually, who give through donor advised funds, and, you know, donors who care about a variety of issues, health, education, policy issues. And so it's really, you know, a really broad range of people in our community who are doing really important work. And yes, we do have our values, again, our liberty, opportunity, and personal responsibility. So most of our community really values those free market solutions to solve problems. All right. Elise Westhoff is president and CEO of the Philanthropy Roundtable. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this special program note, be sure to register for Federal News Network's third annual DOD Cloud Exchange, Tuesday, March 21st through Thursday, the 23rd.
Learn the latest and most crucial developments in moving cloud services to the tactical edge. Day one explores the enterprise cloud when we'll hear from Deputy Defense CIO Lily Zalecki and Special Operations Command Chief Technical Officer Mark Taylor. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 